Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Interesting email from someone who said, Carol, isn't there some way that we can work with you specifically on Help Her Heal? It was a couple that had really wanted to fine-tune their skills. Now, I got to tell you, there are several therapists that are actually promoting Help Her Heal, and they are working with the addict. And then I've got one therapist who is willing to work with the addict for, I think it might be eight or nine or ten sessions in a group situation. And then she is also doing couples work. So she'll have the wife join. Um, and I think she's keeping it to six men so that they, there could conceivably be six couples. And they're going to do the work, too. Um, she's going to use the wife to be the recipient of the empathy skills that I teach through the book. And I'm just super excited because this thing is exploding. And I, I just feel so grateful because I knew that addicts needed to learn empathy. And the wives are typically super jazzed about empathy. Now, what I know to be true is that, unfortunately, sometimes they don't trust the process. So they're glad he's doing it, but they're saying, all right, are you, um, are you duping me again? Well, I guarantee you this is hard work, learning empathy. And they are not duping you if they're doing the work. That's how you always know whether an addict is sincere or not. If he does the work and he or she 
doesn't become complacent, and he sticks with it no matter what your response. Because i got to tell you, if you're an addict out there and you have somebody that you love that you've betrayed, there is no doubt, no doubt, that one of the things that you've got to be able to do is contain her anger and let that ride itself out. And you may be doing the right thing and she may be sending you barbs back, but that's only because she doesn't trust what she's seen. And so you got to be patient and you got to hold on to things and you got to make it work. And when you when you, uh, as I say to my group, when you weather the storm, you know, the initial storm was what you caused, and then the aftermath is her storm. And that's absolutely okay. The angrier she gets, the more she can release that and then grieve. You know, part of the grieving process is anger. And so just trust me here. In 95% of the cases where the wife decides to stay, she will get through the grief. She will get through the anger. Now, there is a 5% chance that she won't. And if she doesn't, and I, that just breaks my heart, I feel like I'm a really good therapist. I do. And so when I can't help a partner heal, I know that the wounding was too much. It might have had to do with complex post-traumatic stress. That means um, traumatic stress and trauma that occurred before you even met her. Or it just might be that she had wanted so badly to trust somebody and your betrayal cut her to the core and she can't recover. In most cases, she can And so hang in there with her, contain her anger, just stand strong, say, I know I caused this, give it to me, I'll take it. You know, I'm not a proponent of you taking abuse, but I also know that her rejection will feel very final, it'll feel very solemn, it'll feel very angry, because what she's doing is making sure that you know that she's not going to tolerate any more deception, any more indiscretions, any more cheating. So please, I'm begging you, hang in there with her because that will be helping her to heal. Now, I am a coach, right? And you, you know that. And you know that I have these coaching principles that I live by. You know, the first one is I'm 100% responsible for my behavior. And that's accountability. And that's like an addict or that's like a partner who is afraid to say what she's not willing to take because she doesn't want to have to enact that. But truly, a lot of times when I'm working with partners, I'll say, You have the right not to know what you're going to do. You have the right to stay in that marriage. But I'm telling you, if you've been betrayed over and over and over again, and you are emotionally wounded every single time, it may be time for you to set some limits 
where there are some consequences where you say no more, no longer, no way, no how. All right. And that's not me encouraging the partner to leave, but that's you standing your ground. Well, which means that I absolutely believe in strategies, tools, skills, and principles that will help anyone get healthier. And I am super and uber excited to have Dr. Carol Clark on. She's a clinical sexologist and runs a training program for professionals in the field of addiction. And she wrote this book on skills and tools that people find really helpful in their daily lives. And that book is called My Pocket Therapist, 12 Tools for Living in Connection. She believes that what gives people hope and strength is to learn to live more fully in connection with themselves, with others, and with their spiritual connections. And so I've asked her to come on the show because she's going to help us to understand that while therapists may be helping you to remove the barriers that continue to feed the addiction or prevent connection, um, that she also wants you to look for the tools and use them to maintain a more connected life. This book keeps it simple in teaching you how to stay connected. And you all know, you've been listening to my show for, oh gosh, I think six years now. I believe connection is the antidote for addiction. And so that's the good news. And Dr. Carol Clark knows the connection to oneself, to fellowship, family of choice or loved ones and to the spiritual world, the universe will help to heal the wounds that have lived within you. So I'm going to have her on. And again, we're going to be talking about my pocket therapist, 12 tools for living in connection. And uh, I don't think she's a coach, but it sounds like a coach's book, so I can't wait to hear more about that. Um, She is confident, and she's a little bit older, and she's wise, and she owns it. So I think she's younger than I am, but I don't know. So let's talk about um, manifesting the life that we deserve. You know, I'm a big believer in our thoughts, our beliefs, our feelings, and our behaviors absolutely create the life that we have. And it is all about balance. I want you to look at your emotional, social, intellectual um goodness gracious, spiritual, purposeful needs. And I want you to be able to keep them in some sort of balance so that you don't have a huge deficit. Because when you are looking at your needs, each one of those needs contributes to good mental, 
and physical and spiritual health. And so you and I both know create our feelings and our feelings create our thoughts. And if you're running on automatic and you're multitasking and you're super busy, wow, you are not paying attention to that inner knowing within you that I truly believe is a conduit to God. And so I want to ask you for this week to practice slowing down. Slowing down, getting quiet, and even as I told a a group of people this weekend, I said, you know what, I'd like for you to practice um, practice an exercise whereby you sit very quietly with a notebook on your lap. Don't sit in front of the computer, but do this by hand. And ask God to write to you through you. Now, what that means is that you ask the universe to write a message to you through you. You are the conduit for what the universe has to say to you. I remember the first time I did this. I don't think you know this story, but um, I remember the first time I did this, I was doing a Christian retreat, and I said, you know what? I did this exercise, and um, the universe, God said to me, Cheryl, you need to go slower. You're moving too fast. I want you to go slow. And I had this dialogue with God, and I said, oh, God, you're asking me to do so much. I hate to go to slow. I, I love a fast pace. I love getting things done. I love diversity. I'm five, and I'm 64. I've been told that I would burn out. Well, when I was 25, I was told I'd burn out by the time I was 30. <laughs> and so... Um, I've been told that by several people. They didn't think I could sustain this energy. And yet, what did I know? I knew that at the time, I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. And I had a lot of energy to give my family of choice, my friends, and my work. Okay. So remember, God said this to me, slow it down. At the end of our retreat, we were at my lake place, and there were about 35 women, and we got on the lake. I was the very first one to get on it, and I was with um, a woman who was a tomboy. She's married, five kids, but just really an athlete, and she said, I am a tomboy. And she said she didn't want to ski, and I said, Jimmy, why wouldn't you want to ski? You're the best skier I know. And she said, I don't know. I just feel uncomfortable about it today. And so I said, well, then you've got a tube with me. I think I was about 50 years old. You've got a tube with me. It's the funnest thing. Well, we got on that tube, and we weren't on the lake more than 15 seconds before we fell off the tube. I didn't even ever feel her hit me. I broke her nose, or at least my clavicle did. She broke my clavicle, and We all giggled. Now, I don't think that was the universe slowing me down, but it definitely slowed me down. 
And instead of being all morose about the fact that I've slowed down, I said, you know, that is what the universe instructed me to do. And even if this unfortunate situation caused me to slow down, I am going to pay attention to that and I'm going to listen to what the universe has to tell me, right? It was one of the best opportunities in my life to be connected, connected to my spiritual self. And so I can't wait for Dr. Carol Clark to talk about how do we practice these tools to slow down, to pay attention to what we need to do, stay connected to ourselves, stay, stay connected to other people, and stay connected to our, our higher power, if you will. And so I have to tell you, I'm super excited about finding out about this new book, My Pocket Therapist, 12 Tools for Living in Connection. And Dr. Carol Clark, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you, Carol. I'm really delighted to be here. Yes. And, you know, you have written a variety of things. I mean, you wrote um, Addict America, The Lost Connection. And now mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's uh, pretty. That's the only other book I've written. I've ri- certainly written a lot of articles um, that are on my website, uh, dr. com. But um, the books, yeah, books take a lot to put together. I admire anyone that puts together whole books. <laughs> well, I get that, and actually, I have to tell you, I think you're one of the busiest people I know because you run training programs, PhD programs for us, for professionals that want to understand sexology and addiction, and and you've written a couple of books, and tell us a little bit about how you got your start and what made you decide to write this book. So my life really has, uh, I heard you talking about the universe and getting these messages. And yeah, my life has just been this progression of following this path of first, um, yeah, having a multitude, variety of jobs in my early life and uh, always coming back to the jobs that were about helping people and counseling. And so finally in my 30s, I settled down, got my degrees, be, uh, became a counselor then specialized, decided to specialize in uh, sex therapy, which was really exciting. And uh, it just came my way because I took this fabulous class with Dr. Marilyn Volker uh, for human sexuality, and it just lighted a fire under me, and I became a sex therapist. And then then when I was, uh, because it was, I was young in my career, um, I was actually without work for a time, and I ended up getting a job in addictions, which I never wanted to do because my father had been an addict and my old boyfriend had been an addict, and I didn't want anything to do with addicts. But they both went into recovery, made amends. Um, I, I ended up a, a job in addictions uh, agency, and I ended up specializing in that. And then later when I was working with sex offenders, uh, one of my offenders came to me one day and said, and this was in the late 90s, and said, you know, I think I'm a sex addict. And um, so there's certainly, uh, while there may be some overlap, I'm certainly never going to say that um, 
sex offenders are all addicts. They're certainly not. But once in a while, some of them are. And this particular person said, you know, I think I'm a sex addict. And we started looking at that. And uh, and he was. <laughs> and uh, And so then I combined the two. So then I started looking at you know, combining uh, healthy sexuality with dealing with sex addiction. And then over the years through the 2000s was when I really started conceptualizing this whole way of looking at addiction as a process, as an addictive way of being, that um, so many people are in an addictive state uh, because addiction is not about um, any one particular drug or behavior. Uh, it's about stimulation as an escape from early childhood trauma and going into adulthood, addiction disconnects us from each other, from our, ourselves, you know, and from a higher power. And uh, I really just those ideas are what kind of fomented for a long time and then resulted in Addict America, the lost connection. And then uh, tell us us a little bit about that book. I mean, the premise of that book is. So the premise of that book is that we are addicted to stimulation. So it doesn't matter what the drug of choice is that provides the stimulation. So there's a lot of drugs alcohol, and then a lot of behaviors, gambling, shopping, sexual behaviors. Um, Food can serve as both a substance and a behavior. Um, Anything, really, our phones, technology, pornography, anything that distracts us, that stimulates us, that um, provides that pleasure that is paired with the relief of pain of disconnection. It's all about the pain of disconnection because a lot of us can, uh, you know, do things that are pleasurable. We can even overindulge in our, when we're young. But what makes a person flip over into addiction is when it's paired with that relief of pain. And that pain is what we don't even realize often that we carry around with us because it's so subtle and insidious. So when we're children and we have these what we call small T traumas. We can have big T traumas like severe abuse or something, but small T traumas, those messages we get that we're not good enough, that we're worthless, we're not important. And that causes this pain, this fear of not being loved and uh, not wanting to get close to people, too close. And uh, so there's a protection. We want to protect ourselves from getting hurt. And that causes pain because then we're disconnecting when we're we're pulling back and holding ourselves back from other people. And we hold back, that causes pain. And then we do something. We do a drug. We do a behavior that provides that relief of pain. And the unconscious, the unconscious brain says, ah, okay, this is, I want more of this. And um, And then that leads us down the path of addiction. So, and this happens to both men and women, and it's not just about the being an addict. It's also about um, being what we call codependent, where because it's really the same. It's it's you know two sides of the same coin. You know whether I'm reaching yeah. for a drug to make myself feel better, or I'm trying to control another person in order to make mm-hmm. myself feel better. Well, that makes a lot of sense, and obviously, I'm sure anybody listening to the show realizes that there is something that they could work on to be 
um, to find more stillness and quietness and really get into what does that have to offer. So I want to hear a little bit about your pocket therapist, you know, the the guide that you wrote, 12 Tools for Living in Connection, My Pocket Therapist. Um, tell us a little bit about what some of those tools are, because I know that you were such an advocate for your clients and taught them skills that they actually carried around with them. And they say things like, I can't believe it, but your voice was right there, and I knew what to do then. <laughs> That gave you the impetus to say, I better write this stuff down. These are good skills. Yeah, that, you know, that was at the that was the motivation for doing Addict America first. Is I had this conceptualization that you know, looking at uh, what happens to the brain as we become addicted, how it interferes with relationships, how it tricks our thinking and behaving so that we perpetuate our addictive behavior and then what we all the things we can do about it and so I found myself with clients just telling the same thing over and over and explaining the same things and I find and I said you know I need to write this down and it took me a long time it took like seven years to get addict America out of mm-hmm. me but um so I got that done and then and then it became the same thing again is I realized I'm getting I'd put a few exercises in the back of Addict America, but then I was thinking I need to just have a book of the exercises because so many people come into therapy and I'm telling them, write this down. I would have a pen and paper um, next to the chair and say, write this down, write this down. So I ended up writing it down for them. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. uh, I just like the idea of my pocket therapist. It's something you can carry me around in your pocket. (laughs) And people would even say that, oh, I wish I could take you home or keep you in my pocket to, you know, for those times when I need to remember all the things that you're teaching me. Because that's the kind of therapist I am is I'm pretty directive. I like to give people tools. I like to give them something to go away with to practice when they're not in my office. And uh, Mm -hmm. in that sense, I'm pretty goal oriented. So I came up with 12 tools because that's um, honestly, that's a a good number, (laughs) um, but there's actually more than 12 tools. So I kind of categorized them and grouped them in a way that we had 12 tools, but within each tool um, are different um, ways of being. And so I then organized the book. Um, this was actually with the help of my niece. Shout out to Erin Watson. Um, she read one of the drafts, and she said, you know, you need to, to organize it into different types of connection. And uh, so I did that. So there's connecting to yourself, and that's looking at how your brain functions. And I talk about the caveman brain being the limbic system, because that's the very primitive part of your brain that works unconsciously with survival. And then there's the enlightened brain, which is the thinking, reasoning, logical brain that is what allows us to make sense of the universe and to say, I am, I am connected, I am in love, I am whatever I am to do all the thinking that we do to make sense of all our emotions. And so the way the caveman brain works, that limbic system, is since it's meant to keep us alive, then uh, that's where all our emotions are. That's where fear is. Fear helps keep us alive. So when fear is activated, and then fear translates into anger quite often. So when these emotions are activated, 
uh, it shuts down the, the prefrontal cortex, the enlightened brain. We can't think, reason, use logic when, our, when we're in a state of high emotion, so especially fear or anger. We can't. It's just our brains are meant to deal with that. It would be like, you know, if you're under attack, you can't stop to think. You have to just react. And so on that very primitive biological level, we have to shut down our thinking brain in order to respond. But obviously that doesn't really work in modern days unless, of course, you're under attack. So for the most part, when we're in these states of high agitation or addiction, because addiction is keeping the brain hyperstimulated all the time, um, then uh, we're not thinking. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, for people, you know, for everyone out there listening who has ever said, oh, I'm so stupid. Well, you're not. Stupid is a thinking process. You're saying I'm so stupid because you weren't thinking in a situation. But you weren't thinking because you were so highly stimulated in that moment. And so the first exercises are all about how we can calm down our caveman brain calm down the limbic system, the autonomic nervous system. And so those are simple exercises to just calm down so we can think, so we can make a decision to live in recovery, which means living in the present, living in connection, and being capable of real intimacy with other people. And then it moves on to well, connecting with others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, because so that makes we, so much sense. Because, you know, what you're talking about is that survival brain, that uh, the executive functioning of that brain goes offline when the amygdala has been activated like that. And so when you get the brain to calm down, it's much more likely that the prefrontal cortex will go back online and you'll be able to pay attention to what you need at that moment. So that is connecting to oneself, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how we start. That's how we start. Okay. And then we move to once we can calm that down and then make a decision, then once that, uh, you know, when the amygdala, the, the survival brain, the caveman brain is calmed down, then we can have that moment of clarity to say, wait, I choose to be different. I choose to be in a place of calm and presence and mindfulness. You know, we hear a lot about mindfulness. So then we can connect with others. And uh, so the next part of the next exercises are all about practicing connection with others. And then from there, we move to strengthening the enlightened brain. And that's really getting a sense of um, just more connection with the universe, more connection with a higher power, with something outside ourselves. Because honestly, there, and that's, that's kind of a paradox, because there is nothing outside ourselves. We are part of everything. When we are, in, in, we are always in connection, what happens is we are not aware of it. You know, that shutting down is, we're just not aware of us. We're, we're turning off to it. And uh, when we make a decision that we want to be connected, it's really saying, well, I already am connected. I just want to be more aware of it, if that makes sense. So, Yes, 100%. Yeah. And so can you give us an example of one of the exercises that you use to either promote connection to self, connection to others, or connection to a higher power? 
Well, so um, one of the things that we can do, so I, I put the book in front of me just so I could pull it out. Um, an orientation mm-hmm. exercise is really nice. The orientation exercise is where you're sitting or standing in place without distractions. You take some breaths from the diaphragm, and I do have uh, that exercise just to kind of get you in touch with your diaphragm and breathe into your diaphragm. And then um, look around at everything. So this exercise is about as if you're, you were a cave person going through the forest and you hear danger. You hear a, a rustle in the forest. And you immediately have to go on high alert and assess whether or not there's truly danger. Is it a tiger or a squirrel? And so when we replicate that, we can start training our brain to really notice what's truly dangerous and what isn't dangerous and when we're safe. And so when you go on high alert, you open your eyes, you look all around, you scan the environment, you you listen, listen intently to everything, identify every sound. You smell the air, identify every smell. You let the... If you're really in that situation, that's when the hairs on our body stands up, the hairs on your arms, because in in true danger, your the hair on your arms is going to feel the air. It's going to sense danger, and you might not cognitively uh, know what it's saying, but your that primitive survival brain will be able to interpret everything. So we go on this high alert when you can replicate that in a t- in a place where you're calm and safe. Then you start to train your brain to know that you are safe. And then you will notice that you calm down and you're still scanning and you realize, okay, I'm safe. I'm okay. There's nothing dangerous here. And when we practice that, then uh, we will get, we'll retrain our brain to have these moments. We'll recognize these moments. We'll be able to differentiate when we're in an artificial place of danger and when we're safe. And that's really useful, too, because um, for people who are uh, in addiction or uh, suffering from PTSD, where they're always on high alert, um, they're not able to ascertain when there's truly danger because it's like they're living in perpetual danger but there's it's there's nothing there so if something really were there they wouldn't be able to respond um so that's a a good exercise to really just start calming down one of the other exercises for uh, connecting with others is uh, heart hugs i love heart hugs of course, now with COVID, <laughs> we can't, right. uh, might not have anyone to do heart hugs with. But a heart hug is, again, it's it's something that our limbic system is programmed to respond to because it's something we do with children, with babies. So when we do a hug, hug somebody heart to heart, chest to chest, and just hold it. Don't stroke the back. Don't don't say anything. It's sometimes that's hard for people to just hold a hug, a gentle hug. Mm-hmm. Hold it, and then feel your body calming. Even if you're already calm, you think you're calm to begin with. When you do a heart hug, ah, oh, there's just this ah. Oh. 
and you feel your breathing slow down and your body relaxes. And now you're learning that, ah, when I need to calm down, when I notice that I'm feeling agitated, then I can say to some to my partner or someone uh, who knows what it means, just say heart hug. That's it. You don't have to explain what's going on. You don't have to talk about it. You just say heart hug, and then you do it. And it's great when you're, you know, in this place of fighting all the time. We have people, if you have couples, that are just fighting and snapping each other and all. Um, because you don't have to talk about it. You just, you've already made an agreement. And if you're my clients, you've made that agreement that we want to connect. We don't want to disconnect. And so every action we take is for connection. And when we notice ourselves disconnecting, then we need to immediately connect. And so we're going to do a heart hug. And then whatever it is we were going to fight about will pretty much either disappear or the the prefrontal cortex will come back online and we can have a talk about it. And that's a, yeah, a connection that exercise with another person. Okay, so that's, and then some and of the uh, exercises, um, what's that? Uh, what about um, connection to spirituality? What so the spirituality, things? yeah. So then the exercises for spirituality, I have um, ways of... I have some things that you can say, uh, like daily prayers type things, intention for a good mm-hmm. day. So you can form an intention, the intention for a day. That's a, here's The power of intention is amazing. If you wake up in the morning and just say, I'm going to have a good day today, you will. You will. It happens. You don't have to think about it again. So... We have the prayer uh, intention for a good day. This day will be a good day. I will be present and mindful. I will smile at everyone. I will listen to others and understand their world. I will nurture myself with good food, exercise, and fresh air. I will be nurtured with hugs and smiles. I will trust in the good intentions of those who love me. I will send light to anyone from whom I perceive harm. I will be the person I want to be. I will be connected. I will be in light. You start your day off with that, and it will happen. So that's one of the exercises for that. You are such a wise woman, and yet you um, also possess this coaching-type energy. You know, more than a therapist, more than an educator, but some of the tools you're talking about come straight out of coaching, the belief that if you set an intention, that is what it will be. And I bet you even believe, like I, that what you put out there, you attract. And so if you Mm -hmm. appreciate life, you're going to get more of that. And if you appreciate negativity, you're going to get more of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, in fact, that's part of my – there's an article on my website. I have another website, addictamerica.net. And Mm -hmm. on there is a really nice article called Intimacy by the Numbers. And everyone, Mm -hmm. anyone listening, anyone who (laughs) hears about this, can just go there and open it up. It's a PDF, and you can download it, distribute it. Don't worry about it. Just, Just pass it around. Because it's a really nice way of explaining 
why relationships don't work. <laughs> so when you're saying, why don't my relationships ever work? Why can't I ever find someone who I can just have a good relationship with? Well, it's it has to do with that uh, law of attraction, that we're going to attract what the energy we put out. And a lot mm-hmm. of that energy doesn't just come from intention, though. It comes from that wounded child in us that learned to fear close relationships, intimate relationships. And so we attract someone who is equally wounded. And so there's that part of recovery as well where we really do need to do the um, work from early childhood. And I personally do EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, and uh, everybody can look that up. But that's just a way of getting into the limbic system and using bilateral um, so that's brain, left brain, right brain um, stimulation to reprocess emotions that are attached to memories and reprocess them to separate the emotion from the memory. Um, but there's other types, behavioral therapy, for instance. When you start changing your behaviors, you can start to rewire your brain that way. So there's uh, things you can do besides EMDR, although I encourage everybody to do EMDR. Uh, there's other things, of well, course, but non-talk therapies, um, you know, hypnotherapy, uh, breath work. There's a lot of non-talk therapies that will help you get to those early childhood traumas. Well, I want to tell everybody that I am talking right now with Dr. Carol Clark and her website. There are several of them. One is www.com. <laughs> drcarolclark.com. Now, does that doctor have a period after it or not? Um, the, a what? An asterisk? Uh, no, a period so, after doctor. Oh, oh, a period. Okay. Um, no, no periods. Just D-R-C-A-R-O-L-C-L-A-R-K. No E after Clark. <laughs> Everybody wants to put an E there. So Dr. Carol Clark, no E, very simple, dot com. Well, and she wrote this current book, and it is called My Pocket Therapist, 12 Tools for Living in Connection. And it sounds like it's a spinoff from a previous book, Addict America, The Lost Connection. And you can go to www.addictamerica.net and find those two handouts, one of which she just talked about, Intimacy and Connection in Recovery, and intimacy by the numbers. So I, while I got to here, I want to ask you something because I'm not sure you're aware, but um, I, I am a CSAT, obviously a certified sexual addiction therapist, and I'm an APSAT. So I'm a partner-sensitive therapist, so I've learned about partner betrayal. And you have some specific beliefs about whether sex addicts can have healthy sex and recovery and you have a specific belief about can couples connect when there is no trust. So I have to ask you both of those things. First of all, I'm mm. going to ask you, can couples connect when there is no trust? So here's the thing about trust. Mm-hmm. When there's been betrayal, the the incredibly painful, severe rocked my world, it's never going to be the same again, betrayal between a couple. Uh, For the partner, it feels like 
the world is never going to be the same again. And, you know, there's a scrambling, there's a desperation in wanting to get back to the way things were, even while knowing that it can never be that way again. There's, uh, and in that is a sense of, well, I want to be able to trust this person again. I have to trust this person if we're ever going to move forward and stay together. And here's the thing about trust. Trust is, what does it mean? You know, what does trust really mean? Can you trust now, the, the partner will say, I want to trust that, and if it's a, a female partner with a, a male addict, uh, the female partner is going to say, I want to trust that this guy is never going to cheat on me again. Well, you know what? That You can't. You can't. You can never trust that because he's an addict. So, okay, I, I say let's trust that today he's working his recovery program. Can we trust that? And how do we do that? And so in the morning, so doing some of these connection exercises are going to help. And every morning you do a connection exercise together and make that commitment. Say, today I am going to be in recovery. Today I'm going to work my recovery program. And today I'm setting an intention to live in recovery. And that you can start to build trust on. And the way you really build trust is doing some of these connection exercises like the eye contact. There's an eye contact exercise. And when you're doing the eye contact exercise, so you're sitting about 12 to 18 inches apart, your face is apart with your eyes connected, really just maintaining that connection through the eyes. And then you will feel your breathing relax. You feel yourselves sinking into what's called limbic resonance. Your brain waves are actually resonating together. And in that moment, you can feel the presence, the full presence of the other person. And that you can trust. This is how addict uh, partners can start to really trust themselves. That's the paradox. It's not about trusting the addict. It's trusting oneself. Trusting that I can live through this, that, that this isn't about me, that whatever he did is not about me, and whatever is coming up for me that I can look at and at some point when I'm ready because, you know, first we need to deal with the immediate trauma and all. But when we're at a point where we're starting to work with trust, it really is about, okay, can I, I need to trust myself. I need to trust my instincts because my instincts have been totally betrayed. I did trust this person and they betrayed me. So what happened? And now how do I start rebuilding trust in my own instincts? But being able to, as partners start going through this process of recovery, they're going to start it's going to become more evident, the gaslighting that went on, all those little things that they didn't want to look at, that, you know, they could feel the disconnect and didn't want to acknowledge it or, or were told, you know, gaslit into uh, denying it. And so we're moving into a place of I'm not going to ignore anything. I'm going to trust my instincts and, and I'm going to feel that connection with my partner. I'm going to do these exercises, and there's there's a lot of them, that will help us feel connected, and that I can trust, and I can trust it for today. And then I can make a decision that today with this person is 
how I want to live this day, that it's going to be a good day, and it's going to be a good day with this person. So that I'm not saying, oh, I need to trust you so that five years from now, if you act out again, I'm not going to say all this time was wasted. No, that's codependence. Don't put your happiness uh, any day of the year into what another person is doing. You choose to be happy today. You choose to live your life today as you want to live it. And if it's with this person who's in recovery, who's working a recovery program, hopefully, then it's going to be a good day. And tomorrow, if he cheats again, you can still look back on yesterday and say, you know, that was a good day. And today, now we got to deal with this. Um, did that so that that's the trust. That's the trust. Can are we connected yeah. in this moment? Can do I feel it? And that I can trust and now let's share that moves into the healthy sex. And can so now yeah. the next thing was about the healthy sex. So now can we exp, express our intimacy? Intimacy is what needs to precede good sex. Because when you're trying to have sex to be intimate, it doesn't work. It's a dead end. Sex to be intimate is turns out to be the the um, faux sex. The um, um, oh my gosh, my brain is blocking on the word. I even use all it. Pseudo pseudo intimacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, pseudo intimacy is when you're having sex and you feel like oh look we're being so intimate and yet the connection isn't there and the pseudo intimacy is what often addicts are doing when they're acting out with uh, you know people with whom they're not going to have an intimate relationship with where they can control the nature of the relationship because uh, you know, so anonymous partners are paying for sex, that kind of thing. So uh, when you build intimacy, and this is what I certainly do and I'm sure most people therapists do is we start building intimacy. And I have that in my book too, eight types of intimacy that you can start building that intimate relationship and, and ways of being intimate of which sex is simply one. And then once you're doing whatever you're doing sexually, and it doesn't matter what you're doing. Um, so for people, you know, with sexual dysfunctions or something, um, it doesn't matter what you're doing or how you're doing it. If you are, are really present with each other and enjoying each other's bodies in a sexual way and able to talk about it and not putting your happiness or your your satisfaction, making being responsible for it yourself, is that we have a saying in sex therapy that everyone's responsible for their own orgasm. So you can't give me an orgasm, but I can tell you what I would like. <laughs> and um, Absolutely. healthy sex is about that. It's about good communication, about, um, you know, expressing what you like, being um, aware of what your partner would like, listening to what your partner would like, being fully present as you are sharing your bodies and sexual pleasure. And that is how you have healthy sex. And and that is very different from addictive sex, which is a frenetic, disconnected experience that is doing something to get stimulated to escape from pain. So it's a very different thing. Well, that makes most sense, absolutely. And so I want to ask you, obviously, you delve into a variety of topics, no matter 
what you're talking about. You have expertise in all these areas. I told my listening audience you're a sexologist, you're a sex educator, you're a PhD, um, you train people, you're a therapist, you're an author. If you had one more um, message for our listeners, because we have both clinicians and coaches, and then we have addicts and partners, what advice or encouragement would you give them about connection? <laughs> um, okay. It's, it's that we are, like I said before, we are connected. And what we want to do is remove the barriers to connection. And so that's approaching it from all these different directions, from healing the old traumas, from behaving as if uh, you can be totally connected, Uh, you know, being mindful of the quality of being in an addictive state and being in a recovering state, being in a disconnected state versus being in a, a connected state. And so when it comes down to to it, uh, what I tell people is ask the, the question, make the decision, is this for my addiction or is this for my recovery? Is this for disconnection or mm-hmm. is this for connection? And you choose, if you've chosen to live in connection and live in recovery, then every decision you make you just ask that question because you everyone everyone has that little inner voice that knows the answer and then life can be very simple you choose to be in recovery you choose to be in connection and then you make decisions that will keep you there and that's it's deceptively advice. simple because it's not so hard to act. It's hard to act on, but the premise is very simple, and um, and you just keep that in front of you. You just keep it in front of you all the time. Well, I so appreciate it, Dr. Carol Clark. You have been very helpful tonight. I know that everybody listening has gotten a lot of information from you. I I do want to remind our listening audience that I am talking to Dr. Carol Clark. And you can go to her website, www.drcarolclark.com, or she also has another website where her book is available, www.addictamerica.net. And she does a lot of talking about intimacy and connection and recovery and intimacy by the numbers, and she has two handouts that you can get there for free. But I would also encourage you to buy her new book, My Pocket Therapist, 12 Tools for Living in Connection. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom tonight. And keep us posted on all the projects that you're doing in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carol. And it just popped into my head what the answer to your last question really was, which is um, be like Sammy. But now since we're wrapping up, that's going to be everybody's teaser. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to go to either book has what it means to be like <laughs> Sammy. So you can read about that. <laughs> And um, I love and it. So be like Sammy, everybody. And yeah, I'm, you're gonna have to read the book. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but it was it was such a pleasure talking with you as uh, always, always. So thank you for everything you're doing and and the work you're doing and bringing such uh, other wonderful speakers 
to the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I know you heard me. We just had Stephanie Carnes on last week, and now we've got Dr. Carol Clark on, and you educated Stephanie Carnes and gave her her PhD. So we're all connected, aren't we? She got, she, I certified her. She actually had a PhD. She had a doctorate. Um, but I, um, yeah, she took our, our sex therapy program. And she, so we board certified her as a sex therapist. Rob Weiss uh, earned his PhD with us. So very good. Well, I knew they were sitting side by side. Yeah, they were side by side. So Stephanie got her, um, her board certification and Rob got his PhD. We're so proud. I mean, it's just, they, they bring such honor to us and our, my Institute. So the, uh, Wow. International Institute of Clinical Sexology, which, if I may just say, we have students around the world. We have a gynecologist in Saudi Arabia and this wonderful mm-hmm. new psychologist in Russia and uh, another woman in um, in Israel. And to have all these people from around the world sitting in class and sharing their experiences of um, how sexuality and gender and everything is looked at in their countries is, um, mm-hmm. oh, my goodness, it's so amazing. Yeah, it's oh, Nigeria. We have a student in Nigeria. There's another one. It's incredible. Oh, I, well, it is incredible. You're incredible, and keep up the good work, and thank you again. Thank you so much. Good night, everybody. Good night. All right, again, that was Dr. Carol Clark, and you, as you can see, she just does a little bit of everything, and we're so excited to have had her on the show. Take a look at that book. I'm not kidding you. I promise you your life will be different if you get that book and incorporate those principles into your life. And as I say, at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times I want you to fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And we'll see you next week for more sex help with Carol the Coach. Make it a good one.